0: Welcome to Attune, an audio narrative anthology brought to you by the Yale Daily News. In order to stay in tune with others, we bring you compelling narratives about the everyday and the extraordinary, stories of human interaction and relationships. In this series, you'll hear student-produced short stories, plays, and poetry, as well as voice talent and original soundtracks by both Yale students and alumni. Whether you're listening on a drive or in quarantine, while making dinner or taking a walk, by yourself or with friends, we hope this collection of stories brings you a little closer together. Today you'll be listening to four poems and the first chapter of an upcoming fantasy novel. The first three poems are titled Kanaima, Hair, and The Remainder. They were written and voiced by Ashley Anthony with music from Blue Dot Sessions. For those who would like to follow along as they listen, there is a link to the poems in the episode description. What are some of the small things that remind immigrants of their home countries when they move to America? What crosses their mind when they take a walk down an American
1: street? Hair. I run my hands through the tin, terse waves of unnatural brown, dyed forcefully in a small act of rebellion. Against what? I can't remember now, and I can feel the calmness of when my hair, jet black and thick, was plat, left over middle over right, falling down my back, each bump from root to tip dwindles down and reminds me of the inherited pain that has trickled into my little life, reminds me of the subjugation of a culture broken and diluted twice over, first on the plantation and again through the shame of the smell of coconut oil and shrile hair. I took the Metro North one day, freezing cold red and white metal clanging along the tracks in transit to JFK, homebound. I watched the New Haven trees peel away into gray suburbia. A woman got on. Her voice carried like discordant feedback, loud, grating, and... and Gaines. the accent seasoned her words familiar twang falling creole flung as she chortled well girl hold on let me sit down interspersed with boisterous laughter well yes yes of course i remember she sister i stared jolted by her sudden appearance almost intrusion and i wondered should i introduce myself or would it be presumptuous i looked down she prattled on and I accidentally made eye contact with a slender white girl enveloped by her college sweater two seats away, who in return smiled halfway as if to say, how annoying, am I right? And I suddenly became aware of the Yale blue t-shirt I bore, its fabric pulling, pulling tighter until I could no longer breathe. That night, I fell asleep in the Bronx and I dreamt of the woman on the train, staring at me, mouthing a word which I could not hear, only feel. Kanaima, Kanaima, she accused me. The Remainder Sometimes, even this megalith of a country manages to compress itself into something recognizable. I see things that I know in small spaces, like the slick of sweat in the summer as it sticks to you, melding your body to your clothing, and in this empty laundromat as I stand for the first time, the heat I feel is the same that I have felt for years as I stood rooted in fields with grass whistling around my ankles, baking in that mid-morning Caribbean sun. When the rain falls on the tarmac of a rest stop, everything that I am now just taking in, the fast food chains never stepped in, how close these stores are to one another yet far away from everything else, and how big a country must be to even need rest stops begins to smother my thoughts, but all at once, this is superseded by that rain running through the grooves of the cement and suddenly I am flowing with it through the rivers of my mind, pooling into the memories of warm May, June rain, falling on fresh dirt, asphalt, and zinc, and I think, yes, this rain is the same, and the smell is the same, and I am left. What a strange thing it is to be an immigrant, surrounded by novelties and firsts, yet always Searching for traces of familiarities, tying myself and understanding this newness from the framework of memory, as my image distorts, I am left, staring at my fragmented reflection in the shifting inch of water, wondering, what is left?
0: The fourth poem in this episode is titled Scarlet. It was written and voiced by Masvi Khan, with original music from Michael Gantz. In this poem, the character thinks about the dangers that minorities face in America.
2: In their dreams, her hijab is a noose, the scarlet silk draped over her shoulders like a cautionary tale. This is what they already know. Her heart, a ticking bomb, all wires, metal, and blood. Her mouth, a cavern of missiles. When they spit terrorists at her, they don't imagine that her body cracks against the pavement, that her blood spills into her hijab until the meaning of her name dissolves on their tongues. This is what they don't know. There are so many ways to wear a hijab, but a weapon has never been one. In a store in Jackson Heights, my mother thumbs through scarves, a rosy pink that compliments her blush, an embroidered emerald the who of her sari, an explosive tangerine that makes her glow like a sunrise. When she holds up the shimmering fabrics under the fluorescent light, they balloon into a gust of wind. Later, in front of the mirror, she will fold each end of her newly bought scarf into the shadows of her face, secure it with pins sharp enough to cleave skin. Now it's perfect. Over breakfast, My mother makes pancakes and repeats the incident about the hijabi who was attacked on the bus. Right here, in Queens, too, she says. My mother wonders how long our burrow has been knived into red margin slits, and she pours too much batter into the bowl. My mother keeps her distance from strangers, tugs her hijab just an inch closer, mutters a prayer onto my chest every day as if I will become a silhouette. For years, the anthem trickled between the gaps in our teeth, yet every bus, every train, every street expands into a depthless ocean. We suffocate, cough up the bitter blue of premonitions. I stare at my reflection in the mirror, and I wonder if this is the face of an American. Melanin-soaked skin, eyes worn by my Bengali grandmother, I wonder if it's even possible my trembling brown hands to hold America in her glorious whiteness, to sing her anthem as if it can oscillate in the syllables of my Islamic name. I fear the story of otherness is only a warning that will echo in the punctures of my ribs. I fear that I will never learn how to harness it into a battle cry that roars and roars. In another dream, a stranger tells her, scarlet is her favorite color, reminds her of the aching wounds we all carry from one home to another. She nods, I know what you mean. My mother no longer tells me about hate crimes during breakfast, because our bodies have never been torn. Our bodies are made of prayers. She says that today will be spectacular, because she watched the sunrise, watched the scarlet linger like a slow melody.
0: The last piece in this episode is titled Where Cakes Dwell, Here Be Deathlings. It was written by Coco Ma and it is the first chapter of her upcoming fourth fantasy novel, Deathlings. In it you will hear the voice of Serena Pwong as well as original music from Amelia Lake.
3: These days, the only time I ever have for killing monsters is after school. Maybe that's how I've ended up here. Lying spread eagle in the middle of the subway tracks bleeding out in the darkness with no hope of backup. I can still see the remains of the shortcake I brought to bait the Deathling out of the corner of my eye, the pretty white frosting and jellied strawberries splattered along the grimy rails like a smashed-in skull. I try to stay perfectly still as the Deathling sniffs at me. It reeks of sewage and sulfur and piss. The sound of its labored breathing grows louder and louder until its snuffling wet lips brush against my ear. It takes every ounce of control within me to stop myself from cringing away in horror at those seemingly endless rows of teeth. Play dead. That's the number three rule when it comes to deathlings. To be honest with you, I've already broken the first two rules never break curfew, and never carry sweets below the streets. Charming, no? My grip tightens on the gun clenched in my right fist. I've only got one NN bullet left. I need to wait until I can get a clear aim of its chest. One shot. One chance. I can't waste it. I can only imagine how exasperated Mara will be if I live to tell her this tale. My older sister's voice fills my head. How in the name of Lady Liberty do you always get yourself into these messes, Mei It all started this afternoon. As soon as the final bell rang, I stuffed my Inhuman Anatomy 4 textbook into my locker and rushed out of financial district prep school. With my cruiser tucked under one arm and my gun strapped to my thigh, hidden safely beneath the pleated skirt of my uniform, I skated five blocks uptown to pick up the cake I'd ordered. Then it was back to Rector Street and the old subway entrance with a cake and a box cradled in my arms. Everything above ground, from the lamppost, the dark green railing, and the station placards have been demolished, already forgotten by some, but not by the people who still remember what the city once was, like me, nor those who fight to restore it, to put an end to the nights reigned by terror in the scarlet-stained streets, like the Syndicate. Almost all of the subway entrances have been sealed off permanently, replaced with aggressive steel doors set into the concrete. Red, keep away signs slapped across their fronts. Not that anyone in their right mind would ever try to break through those doors. No offense, but if a Deathling can't break through them, neither can you. Luckily, I have a key. By the time I arrived at the station, the warning trills of the curfew bells were echoing through the whole of New York City. Despite them, silence hung heavy over the financial district's sidewalks. The area was already deserted, the street in front of FD prep void of students. No traffic roared up Battery Place. No cars crawled along Greenwich Street. The streetlights flickered from green to yellow to red, directing nothing and no one, but they too would soon go dark. When the bells started ringing, the pole cart selling donuts and hot coffee at the crosswalk vanished. Every now and then, a tormented moan would drift out of the sewer grates, sometimes accompanied by a stolen snatch of song sung by voices too beautiful to be human. Before sundown, the city's breath is always held, both expectant and dreading, the way you wait for swollen gray clouds to rupture with rainstorm. After I unlocked the doors, first with a key and then by punching in a code into the keypad above the keyhole, I slipped into the abandoned entry point, downtown, to South Ferry. Rector is one of the smaller local train stations near the southern tip of Manhattan, past the final express stop, so only two tracks run through the station for the local trains, one uptown, one downtown. The ceiling lights guttered to life. Gleaming sickly white against the glazed tiles. I ran my fingers along the railing as I skirted down the stairs. My footfalls hushed. The air against my skin, cool but muggy like a clammy fist. I passed the Metro card machines. Their empty black screens once phased me. But not anymore. At the turnstile, I placed the cake on my skateboard and gave it a nudge to roll under the bars. None of the turnstiles were actually operational, so I braced my hands upon the metal ticket boxes on either side of me and vaulted myself over. With my gun in one hand and the cake box in the other, I cruised down the platform on my board, side by side with the bright yellow edge strip, the gummy rubber wheels silent along the smooth floor tiles. Halfway down, the station plunged into darkness. I dangled my right foot over the side of my board until the bottom of my boot skimmed the floor. I came to a stop right where the shadows began to flirt with the dwindling light. I allowed myself a moment to just stand there. To remember. The warm draft gusting my face as the trains careened through the tunnel. The crowds of waiting people, businessmen and the homeless alike, teeming along the platforms. The loudening roar of that metal beast reverberating in my bones. The ear-splitting shriek of the wheels against the rails. When I was little, I'd always clap my hands over my ears every time Mara and I rode the subway to school together. Stand clear of closing doors, please. But the last time anyone rode the subway was 15 years ago, before the vanishing. With a sigh, I propped my skateboard against the wall and lowered myself over the platform onto the filthy tracks, taking care to avoid pools of foul brown muck. As well as the third rail, the strip of steel running between the tracks that used to conduct electricity to the subway cars. The Transit Authority cranks up the amperage during the day, double that of when trains actually ran. At 625 volts, it's more than enough to fry you to a crisp. Or more importantly, fry the deathlings that roam and rule the underworld of New York City. Carefully, I set down the glossy white box and lifted the lid. I made sure not to get any frosting on my fingers as I removed the freshly baked strawberry shortcake. The last thing I wanted was for a nightfang to chomp off my hand. With surgical precision, I placed the cake between the electrified rail and the track closest to me. Half in the light, half in the shadows. Then I boosted myself back onto the platform and jogged over to my hiding spot a barricade of three hulking black city-issued trash cans that I pushed across the platform last week. Crouching down to wait, I triple-checked my gun mag. NN bullets are very hard to come by, and I used half the cartridge the day before yesterday. Specifically manufactured by the Syndicate Weaponsmiths, a single bullet could make all the difference in the face of a hungry deathling. Now, the first thing to know about deathlings is that they will eat you but only at nightfall when the sun's gone down. The second thing to know about deathlings is to start running as soon as you smell their signature rotten egg scent. Because as soon as one of them is close enough for you to see, rotten eggs will be the last thing you ever smell. And the third thing to know about deathlings is that they love sweets. Anything sweet, really. Belgian waffles, churros, banana bread pudding. However, I've learned that there's nothing a deathling loves more than cake. As the saying goes, where do cakes dwell, here be deathlings. Or something like that. I kept my eyes glued on the pitch black void at the end of the subway tunnel, counted the seconds between every breath, forcing my pulse steady and calm. Not even five minutes had passed when sure enough, that unmistakable stench wafted into the air. My nose scrunched, but otherwise, I remained stone still. Like a vulture to a stinking carcass, the Deathwing
2: arrived.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Attune. It was produced by Slavea Zaharieva and Laura Palacio-Londonio. I'm Laura, your host for today. This episode was sound engineered by Jonathan Galbert, Slavea Zaharieva, and Laura Palacio-Londonio. Our intro and outro theme is written by Sharon Ahn. Special thanks to Allison Park, the podcast editor at the YDN, without whom this project would never have been possible. Special thanks also to Coco Ma for working with us on adapting the first chapter of her upcoming novel, You can find further updates on Deathlings on her Instagram page, Cake for Coco. Join us again for our third season, which will be released next fall. As always, from all of us at Attune, thanks for listening and have a great day.